Well, good morning. Good to see y'all this morning. Looks like we're going to get a few cool days coming up here. We had a hot one this past week. Uh, the elders were uh, on retreat, had a great time praying, seeking the Lord, discussing, talking, uh, just Lord's doing a lot of exciting things, and so we're excited about communicating some of those with you next week, so please make plans to join us uh, at 5 o'clock right here next Sunday. Well, over the uh, last nine weeks, we have learned about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ in the book of Colossians. It's been an amazing little journey, and we've learned, at least hopefully we've learned, that Christ is all we need. Now, I think in some ways we can assent to that up here, but in practical day-to-day living, we need to be reminded of that quite a bit. We don't need man-made legalistic rules or regulations We don't need special knowledge or some mystical experience in order to gain fullness in Christ. We already have it. That's what the book of Colossians is all about, is that we are complete in him. And this truth applies in every area of our life. And that's what Paul's been getting at throughout chapter 3 and even going into chapter 4 here. Because we are complete in him, we can live holy lives. Because we're complete in him, we can have unity and harmony in the church. Because we're complete in him, wives can submit to their husbands. Husbands can love their wives. Children can obey their parents. And slaves can serve their masters as unto the Lord. And masters can treat their slaves as brothers and sisters in Christ. We now come to the end of our study in the book of Colossians. And Paul concludes his letter by addressing two final but critical things in the life of of a believer, and that is his prayer life and his witness. So this morning, what I want to hammer home is that because we are complete in Christ, we can devote ourselves to prayer. We can walk in wisdom, and we can always be gracious in our speech. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for this wonderful little book, one that is in many ways far removed from where we are in 2021 But in many other ways, Lord, these truths that we have read about um, are so apropos for our time. That, Lord, that we can find application of your word for our lives in the here and the now, in our relationships with one another, in our relationship in the church and even in the world, in our conduct, in our speech, in our prayer life. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be our teacher and our guide this morning as we look at these holy words that were written for our instruction, for our good, and for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Pastor and author F.B. Meyer said once that the great tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, It's unoffered prayer. And I think that's quite true. And when you think about it, with with such a blessing at our disposal, it is a tragedy that we don't take more advantage of it, that we don't avail ourselves of it more than we do. And in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, The Apostle Paul wants to ensure that this will never happen to the Colossian believers. 
And I think as we look at this, Paul would say that he wants to ensure that it doesn't happen to us. That we wouldn't fall into this trap of prayerlessness. If you have your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 4. I'm going to read the first six verses. We're going to spend the bulk of our time here. And just to give you fair warning, the uh, first point is going to be the longest. So when I tell you we have really three points that we're going to cover, um, if, if we get a little long on the first point, don't worry, they're not equal. So we'll get out on time normally. So Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2, Paul writes... Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So the first exhortation that Paul gives us here is to devote ourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. We, we see that when he says in the ESV, continue steadfastly in prayer. And the word here describes our posture when it comes to prayer. It means literally to be devoted to or to be stubbornly persistent in, to continue, to endure and persevere in. And when you take all of that together, it doesn't sound like this is just a fleeting prayer. Seems like there's an awful lot of time being spent in prayer. And I would say that what Paul is really getting to here is that we are to be faithful and tenacious in prayer. I think prayer is a lost Christian discipline in the church. I mean, many people pray at the dinner table And we pray when we're in a crisis. And we may throw up prayers here and there for various things, but I'm not sure that we truly know how to pray. And and that would put us in good company because the disciples didn't know how to pray either. Remember, they came to Jesus. Keep in mind, they came out of a religious background. They were Jews. They took pride in their practices, and yet they came to Jesus and, Lord, teach us to pray. We don't know how to pray. Teach us. I think prayer for many people is kind of like that little red box that you see on the wall. Like there's one over there, there's one over there. It says fire on it. What's it say underneath it usually? Break in case of emergency. I think that's kind of how we treat prayer. As a last resort. (laughs) That we we turn to when there's an emergency, when there's a, a crisis. But what does Scripture say? Scripture says we are to be devoted to or faithful in prayer. We are to pray at all times and without ceasing. Jesus told his disciples always to pray and not lose heart. Prayer, then, should be a daily habit that is as natural as breathing. Does that describe your prayer life? The the Wesleyan Methodist preacher Samuel Chaddock said this. He says, there is no power like that of prevailing prayer. Of Abraham pleading for Sodom, Jacob wrestling in the stillness of the night. Moses standing in the breach. Hannah intoxicated with sorrow. David heartbroken and remorseful, filled with grief. Jesus in sweat and blood. Such prayer prevails. 
It turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. I have to tell you, as I've been preparing it for this message, and, and the reason why point one is so huge is because God has been speaking to me. I, 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 I went into this thinking that I pray a fair amount. But after reading this and thinking about what Paul is saying, and, and I just realized that oftentimes it feels like you're just going through the motions. That's why Paul, I think, goes on and says that we are to be watchful in prayer. That's hard, being watchful in it. It literally means stay awake. Stay awake or be alert or vigilant. Now, I think it goes without saying that you have to be awake to pray, right? I mean, I suppose you could pray in your dreams, but, I mean, most of us, we have to be awake when we pray, And I think about the disciples again as they went with Jesus to the garden to pray before his betrayal. And and Jesus asked them, and he says, hey, watch and and pray with me. I'm gonna go over here, I'm gonna pray. Watch and pray. And he comes back, you know, an hour later, and he finds them asleep. He finds them asleep. And, and And he says to them, could you not stay awake for one hour? And then he adds this. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think for most of us, we can identify with that. It's easy to doze off in prayer, especially when someone else is praying one of those long, drawn-out kind of prayers, right? You know, you're just kind of doing one of these numbers. Prayer is an amazing thing, but we need to overcome the weakness of our flesh. We have to find a way to stay awake, to stay alert, to be vigilant. Spontaneous prayer is great. Praying on the way to work, on the way home, when you wake up, when you go to bed, and all of that. But I really believe that we need to plan to pray. We need to plan to pray. And I'm, I'll share some tips with you a little bit later. But how many times have we said, you know, um, well, uh, I don't have time. I'm, I'll pray about that later. And then we never get to it because we don't plan to pray. We need to understand that prayer is a battleground. We wrestle with God in prayer, but not in the way that you might think. It's not like we're trying to get God to do something for us that he's unwilling to do. We are wrestling primarily with ourselves, with our own flesh, with our own selfishness. We have to learn patience because we're always in a hurry. We want God to speak and we want him to speak now. And we want him to do for us what we want him to do for us. And when that doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen right away, we stop praying. Have you ever thought that maybe God's lack of an immediate answer is his way of stretching your faith, of maturing you, of seeing how persistent will you be? How passionate will you be about that which you are praying? Like what John MacArthur said, he said, true prayer often involves struggling and grappling with God, proving to him the deepest concern of one's heart. Prayer is to be a persistent, courageous struggle from which the believer may come away limping. So when was the last time you came away limping from prayer? Again, make no mistake, we're not, we're not wrestling with God to try to get him to do for us something he's unwilling to do. Rather, we are crying out to him to act in accordance with who he is and what he has said he will do. Scripture says if we pray anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And when we come to the Lord in prayer, what we're doing is we're declaring his word to be true. We are declaring that we believe what scripture says and we are calling upon God to act in accordance with his word. Warren Wearsby says this about prayer. He says, prayer is not telling God what to do or what to give. Prayer is asking God for that which he wants to do and can give according to his will. And as we read the word in fellowship with our Father, we discover his will and then boldly ask him to do what he has planned. He goes on to quote Richard Trench, the Archbishop of Dublin, and he says this, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his willingness. In many ways, prayer is a demonstration of God dependence. We are demonstrating our dependence on God and it helps mold our wills into his. And as we learn to commune with God, our, our wills are then formed and shaped so that we begin to think and act as Jesus would. We learn to recognize his voice. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospels, right? He says, my sheep hear my voice and know me. You know, if you had gotten a phone call from a perfect stranger and he starts talking to you like you were best buds, at some point you're going to say, who is this? Because you don't know the voice. But if it's somebody who you've talked to frequently and they called you on the phone, you wouldn't ask that question, would you? You'd say, hey, Megan, good to see you. You know, hey, Paul, how are you? Or not good to see you. You can't see him over the phone. But good to hear your voice. What are you up to? You'd have this conversation because you've learned to recognize the voice on the other end of the phone. And the same thing is true in prayer. We learn to recognize God's voice as we are in his word and as we engage him in prayer. When we sit at the feet of Jesus, as we wait on him, we find we are changed. We become more like Christ. And frankly, we become better prepared for the answer that he may give us because it may not be the answer we were looking for. Not only do we need to be watchful in prayer, alert and vigilant, we're to be thankful in prayer. Paul says we're to pray with thanksgiving. And thanksgiving keeps us focused on the character of God. It keeps us focused on the faithfulness of God, without which we become short-sighted and selfish. When we express our gratitude to God, we are reflecting on his character. We are remembering his faithfulness in the past to us. And suddenly, that changes our perspective on life. Whatever it is that we may be going through, I mean, there are, there are times, I can tell you, in, in my life that we're had, had I not had a track record of faithfulness with God, if God had not had a track record of faithfulness, I would have been despondent. But I was able to look back on his faithfulness in my life in previous times. And I was able to say, Lord, I don't know how I'm gonna make it through this. But I know I will because you will carry me through. And I know that because you've done, you've done it time and time again in my life. I have so much to be thankful for. And I know you will do it again. We're to be thankful in prayer. And boy, if I were to ask you right now, what are some things that we'd be thankful for? We, we could be here forever. We could shout out a bunch of things that, that we're thankful for the other thing I think thankfulness does for us, it keeps prayer from 
turning into what I call a divine wish list, where we approach God, you know, with our list of demands. God, I need you to do this. I want you to do this. Please, Lord, do this. You know, and it becomes this list, this petition and supplication without any praise, without any gratitude for what God has done for us. You see, the kindness and the goodness and the mercy of God gives us reason to pray. It requires us to reflect on what God has done for us. And as I said, it gives us perspective on life and in life's difficulties. Now for Paul, Thanksgiving was a normal part of his life. It was a normal part of his prayer life. And just in the book of Colossians, six times he mentions Thanksgiving. In chapter 1, verse 3, then verse 12, then chapter 2, verse 7, then chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17, and now here in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. In fact, I like how the New American Standard um, puts it. It says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. With an attitude of thanksgiving. And, you know, that's remarkable in itself. But when you consider that Paul was in, in chains, in prison, when he wrote this, it, it, it's, it's truly remarkable that, that he can be in captivity, suffering for the gospel, and yet be so filled with, with thanksgiving. Well, that's not all that Paul says here that our prayers should be like. He says we are to be purposeful in our prayers. Look at verse 3. You see, to, to be purposeful in our prayers means we need to be intentional. We need to be specific in our prayers, and we pray according to knowledge. Too often, I think our prayers are are haphazard and and aimless, nonspecific. We might say something like this, God, um, uh, you know, bless our family, bless our church, uh, bless our missionaries, bless our country, right? We might say, God, uh, heal my marriage, We might say, you know, God help me be a better Christian. Now, even as I say those things, you're thinking, well, I pray those prayers. Well, that's my point. They're general. They're generic. They don't get to the root of the thing. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but I think God wants us to go deeper with our prayers. I think a lot of times it's just easy to pray these broad, vague, general prayers because then when, you know, the the answer doesn't come, we're not too terribly disappointed and it doesn't really require anything of us. I think the kind of prayer that God delights in is prayer that motivates us to action. Think about it this way. Rather than God... um, bless the church, bless my family, bless the world, whatever, you know, rather than that, how about God teach me how to be a blessing to my family, to my church, to our missionaries. Rather than God heal my marriage, how about God change my heart? Root out the lust that's in there or the anger or the bitterness, or the resentment that exists in my heart. Or instead of help me be a better Christian, how about something like, God, make me miserable when I stray from you. Give me a greater understanding of your word. Fill me with your spirit and give me an undivided heart and empower me to live a life that is holy and pleasing to you. I mean, if you were honest, if if you were God, which prayer would get your attention? Which prayer would you delight to answer? 
In verse 3, Paul gives the Colossians something specific to pray for. And it's something that I think we need to be in prayer for as well. He says in verse 3, we're to pray for others. Now, this is interesting because he includes himself in this. Paul, the great apostle, is declaring to the Colossians and to us that he needed prayer. He needed people to lift him up before the throne of God to sustain him and empower him for service. We see it there, right? Pray also for us. And I think if the apostle Paul needed prayer, how much more do we need prayer? Do we need one another to pray for us and us for them? Not only does he say pray for us, pray for other people, He says, pray for God to open doors for the word to be proclaimed. He says, to declare the mystery of Christ. Now, this is is remarkable too. Because if I was Paul, and perhaps if you were Paul, this would not have been the prayer that you would have prayed. If, If I was Paul, I would be saying, hey guys, pray that I get out of here. Pray that, that somehow, some way, I will be able to get out of these chains, to get out of this prison, so that I can preach the gospel. You know, I mean, I would have added that. I, I want to be spiritual, you know? But I mean, really, it would have been, I don't want to be here. Pray that God will alleviate this burden, this hardship this difficulty from my life. And I think a lot of us pray like that too. When we encounter the trials and the testings of life, we often resort to, God, please remove me from this or take this away. Paul doesn't pray that. Paul doesn't pray for an escape. He doesn't ask them for that. Instead, He asks for prayer to be a faithful witness of Christ and the gospel. Wow. Whether free or in chains, his only concern is that the gospel be proclaimed and that God would use him to that end. Some of you might say, well, couldn't he have done that more effectively if he wasn't in prison? I I don't know. I don't, frankly, I'm not, I don't think so. I mean, how do you improve on four books of the Bible being written? I mean, from prison, Paul writes Ephesians, Philemon, Colossians, and Philippians that we're now reading 2,000 years later that the church has benefited from for centuries and centuries. Not to mention the fact that while he was in Rome, he led many people to Christ, including many Jews, Roman soldiers, even members of Caesar's own household. Oh, and a guy by the name of Onesimus who was the bearer of this letter, who was originally from Colossae, who happened to be a runaway slave, and whom we're going to learn a lot more about starting next week. Let me summarize Paul's ministry from Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. Paul was under house arrest and says in verse 30 that he lived there two whole years at his own expense. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So isn't this amazing to think about that even in prison, 
even in chains, under house arrest for two years. The gospel is not hindered. Paul was hindered. The gospel was not hindered. And lives were transformed. And that's what Paul prays for. Pray for open doors. That's what we should pray for. We should pray for one another that God would open up doors for the word to be proclaimed. But he doesn't end there. He goes on in verse 4. And he tells us that we're to pray for clarity in the presentation of the gospel. He says that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Clarity in sharing the gospel is not an optional exercise for Christians. We need to work hard at sharing the gospel in a way that is clear and compelling. We have a treasure beyond measure in the gospel and we cannot afford to be sloppy with it. That's why earlier this year we spent time talking about developing your personal testimonies. That's why we have given you tools in which to write out your testimony so that you would first think through it, get your thoughts down on paper, organize it so that you can be clear in your communication with others. Non-Christians do not benefit, nor is God glorified when our communication is as clear as mud or confusing. It's, it's not enough to say, well, I know the gospel or I, I know what I believe. You, we are called to communicate the gospel. And Paul says here, pray for me. Pray for me. The Apostle Paul, who we would probably all say he's pretty clear, but he's saying that, you know what, I'm in, I'm in prison. I'm under hardship. I've got all these stressors in my life. It's possible I could shrink back. I, I might be tired and fatigued, and I might not communicate the gospel as clearly as I ought, so pray for me that I make it clear the way that I ought to. The way that we ought to. Paul understands all of this and, and that's why he asks for prayer. And here's the good news again. Because we are complete in Christ, we can devote ourselves to prayer. Both for ourselves and for others. Another exhortation that Paul gives in this text is found there in verse 5 that we are to conduct ourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of our time. The New American Standard says making the most of the opportunity. And again, because we are complete in Christ, we can conduct ourselves towards wisdom, towards outsiders. Now, outsiders is a term... It's used several times in the New Testament, and it refers to those who are not yet Christians. So what's that make us? Spiritual insiders. And that's another reason why we have to work hard to clearly communicate the gospel, because those on the outside don't often understand the language that's being used by those who are on the inside. We have to be aware of Christian jargon and, and, and what I refer to as Christianese or Christian lingo that means something to us but befuddles the world. Walking, as we've mentioned already in our study in the Colossians, refers to the manner in, of which we live our lives. It speaks to our conduct. And as you know, non-Christians are often critical of Christians. And in some cases, rightfully so. What's their biggest complaint against Christians? Hypocrisy. Hypocrites. Church is full of hypocrites. They profess one thing, 
and they do something else. And then they try to tell me how I'm supposed to live my life. Paul says we're to conduct ourselves with wisdom. We're to walk in wisdom towards those who are not yet Christian. Folks, we don't need to give people the ammunition in which to shoot us with. Right? Walking in wisdom includes living holy lives, avoiding unwholesome speech, working hard, being kind, paying our bills on time, keeping our promises, not driving like a maniac, and tipping well. That one really gets me. I have, I've been to dinner with, with folks who have griped and complained about the service or the food and, and they, they leave no tip or a minuscule tip. But then they put a track on the table. That's their tip, to tell them about Jesus. And I want to scream. There was somebody a number of years back who I knew very well that did something that I just, and he, he did it all the time. And I, I hope you have never done this. I really do. But he would go into fast food restaurants and he would take cups that are in the garbage, go rinse them out, get himself a drink from the machine. Now, you may never do that. Hopefully, you've never done that. But what about ordering a cup of water and then going and getting your Coke? I've seen that happen, too. How in the world are we going to win people to Jesus when we live like that? When we make decisions like that. To conduct ourselves with wisdom means that we are careful not to say or do anything that would ruin our testimony or hinder the gospel. But it also means that we must seize the opportunities that God gives us to share Christ with those who do not yet know him. It is making the best use of our time. We have to choose every day how we spend our time. And Paul is saying here that we should redeem the time. We should buy it back. We should use our time wisely because life is short. And people are going to hell. And they need to hear the gospel. And we are God's mouthpiece. I like what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 16, 15 and 16. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And I know that there's a lot of people who kind of fall back on, well, I don't really you know, share my faith verbally. I just live it. Folks, you gotta do more than live it. You gotta say it. You gotta speak it. We need more than godly living. We need godly words. We must share the gospel with others as God gives us opportunities. And Paul then goes on to remind us that we are to be gracious and winsome in our speech. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Again, because we are complete in Christ, we can always be gracious in our speech. It's not a matter of, 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 of being unable to do it. God's spirit lives within us. We have received fullness. We have to yield to the power within. We have to yield to his lordship in our lives. 
We don't win people to Jesus using the baseball bat approach. Right? Beat Jesus into you. If we've experienced the grace of God, then we have to extend that very same grace to others. Our speech should be gracious and winsome. Paul adds that it should be seasoned with salt. And that's, that's an interesting phrase. And you wonder, well, why does he add that here? Well, salt then, as today, adds flavor to foods, doesn't it? But it was also used as a preservative. It kept meat from rotting. And what Paul is saying here is that our lives, just as our lives are not to cause people to reject the gospel, neither should our speech. That our speech should not be rotten. Our words ought to make the gospel more attractive. I love the New Living Translation. It says, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. So let me ask you, as I start to wind down this morning, how do you need to respond to God today? Because there's a ton of application in this passage. First, are you devoted to prayer? Are you conducting yourself in wisdom towards outsiders? Is your speech gracious and winsome? If you're still struggling, let me give you five action steps, five tips. Schedule a time for daily prayer in your day. Schedule it. And what I mean by schedule it is schedule it. Put it in your calendar. Set an alarm. Now, if you're like me, you'll struggle with that at first because there's always stuff going on. Right? So the first thing you have to do is you have to look at your, your day, your calendar, and say, when would be a good time to do this? I do not suggest 11 o'clock at night, right? That, not a great time. Find another time, but schedule it. Start small. If you're not used to praying regularly, give God five minutes. He'll be pleased with that. And then watch it grow. But, but schedule a daily time of prayer and make it a habit. The more you do it, the more you'll like it. And I think the more change and transformation you'll see in your life. Second, make Thanksgiving a regular part of your prayer life. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but you know, get a journal and start writing out all the things you're thankful for. Before long, you'll have a book that you can open up to any page at any time and offer up some of the things that you've written as prayers to God. Make, make, make time to pray for open doors. Pray for your elders. Pray for your life group leader, your D group leader. Pray for your friends, for family. Pray that God will give yourself and others an open door to present the gospel. And then here's a tough one but learn to share the gospel clearly. There are a lot of tools that are available. In the future, I would like to, to actually have us uh, have a seminar on how to share the gospel. And I, I, I think something very simple, very simple, a tool that we can easily learn, that we can sit down at a lunch appointment and pull out a napkin and share the gospel with somebody. And then pay attention to your walk and your talk. Simple tips that will help us. So because we are complete in Christ, we can devote ourselves to prayer. We can walk in wisdom towards outsiders and our speech can always 
be gracious. Paul concludes his letter with some final greetings. And I I would love for us, I I really would have loved for us to look at each of Paul's companions uh, in detail, but but we're, we're about out of time. So, so I'm just going to read through this and make a couple of comments. If you look at verse 7, we read, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. These two gentlemen were chosen by Paul, hand-picked by him to deliver three letters. One to the church at Ephesus, one to the church of Colossae, and a personal letter from Paul to Philemon. As I mentioned before, Onesimus was a runaway slave who Paul had won to Christ in Rome. And he was a part of Philemon's household. He was Philemon's slave. And Paul sends him back to Colossae and to Philemon along with his letter. And what I think is most interesting here is how Paul describes this this young man. He says he is a faithful and beloved brother. Onesimus hadn't been saved for long, and yet Paul refers to him as a faithful and beloved brother. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, That's John Mark, by the way. Concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. Wonder why he changed his name. Actually, a lot of times there was a Jewish name and a Roman name. And so John Mark and Jesus, Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. And Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling. There's that word that we talked about earlier. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. The same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. It's a powerful letter. And the the thing that stands out to me most in this final greetings is the inclusion of Demas. We could talk about all the other people that are mentioned, but Paul mentions Demas here. He also mentions Demas in his letter to Philemon. And then if you turn to 2 Timothy, you'll find that he is mentioned yet again, but not in a positive way. You see, Demas later deserted Paul. And he went back to the world. 
His love for the world was greater than his love for Christ. And the thing that I took away from that is simply this, that folks, it's not how you start the race. It's how you finish. Demas started out well, surrounded himself with many godly men, was involved in ministry, and yet he fell away. Unoffered prayer is indeed a tragedy. But I think a greater tragedy is to have once offered prayer to the God of heaven and then walk away from him. May that never be the case for anyone here or anybody watching online. May God help us all to finish well and to live as those who are complete in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for not only this morning and the word that we have studied, but Lord, for this entire book, for your servant Paul, for the church at Colossae, Lord, in many ways, this church was a model for us, not only in what they did well, but in their struggles. And Lord, you impressed it upon your servant Paul to write words to encourage them, to challenge them, to equip them so that they might be faithful in their walk with you. And it all, it all stems from the knowledge that we are complete in Christ. Lord Jesus, help us as your people here in 2021 at New Life to walk with you in such a way that honors you, glorifies you, and results in many more lovers of Jesus being in your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.